The sermon lesson for today comes from John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the gospel of the Lord. Our God, we come to you with open hands and with open hearts, and we pray that you would fill them. In the name of your Son, who is the fullness of your grace and your truth, we pray. Amen. Uh, So I think most of us are familiar with the Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And in the book, the main character is... Uh, a man named Ebenezer Scrooge, and he's described by this way in, in Dickens' words. He's a tight-fisted, squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous, old sinner. And in, in the three visits that he has with these different ghosts of, of Christmas past, present, and future... He's shown something about his life that changes him. Through these visions, he sees that his whole life has been one of taking from others in order to fill himself. So there is a vast difference between taking and giving. Taking starts with scarcity and it starts with emptiness, and it pulls from others to try to fill that void that we have in ourselves. Whereas giving starts at a very different place. Giving starts from this place of abundance and fullness and looks to take what we have and overflow that into the lives of others and their places of emptiness and their places of scarcity and of need. What about God? Does, does God start from a place of scarcity and emptiness and need and use us to try to, to fill that in Himself, those holes that He has? Does He need our obedience? Does He need our trust? Does He need our money? Does He need our Worship? Does he need our good works? Does he create us as a kind of needy parent that's looking to us and to our lives and something that we bring to the table in order to fill some kind of void that he has in his life? Or does he start from this place of abundance and fullness and overflows that fullness and that abundance into our places of scarcity? and need, and want. It's easy in the, in the messiness and confusion and brokenness of life to get confused about this, of, of really who God is and who He is for us. 
and what he wants from us or what he wants for us. But what we're going to see this morning in, is that the hope of Advent and the hope of the gospel, it is all about God taking his fullness and his life and his light and all that he is and his abundance and sharing it with us. God taking what he has and pouring it out freely and abundantly and generous with greater love than that we've ever known. And he does this, this pouring out of his fullness in two specific ways that come out in our text this morning and that we're really going to focus on. He, he shares his fullness in pouring out the fullness of his glory to us and pouring out the fullness of his grace to us. And so God, abundance, fullness, us, emptiness, scarcity, pouring himself out, Glory, grace, and along the way, what that all means for us. So first, God shares the fullness of His glory with us. So when I was a kid, I loved watching David Copperfield on TV. Do y'all remember him at all? Um, so he was, he was a magician, and I remember even my parents took, it, took me and my brother to see him at the Fox perform and he did all sorts of different tricks making socks dance making things disappear but his, his kind of primo act was the death saw <laughs> so you have him all all chained up and his arms are sticking out and then they enclose him in a box and then there's this giant saw that they have a timer and they press the go button and all of a sudden it starts going down and you know how this trick works it's it, he has to find a way to escape so that this saw doesn't come down on him and mow him in half. And so right away, the clock starts. You see him to start struggling. Nothing seems to be happening. You're wondering what's going to happen. And you just kind of know that at the last second, it's all going to come unraveled and he's going to pop out. And this starts to happen as, as the box kind of comes unfolding and he starts struggling. And you think this is the moment but just at that moment, the saw goes right through him. And there's all this blood that appears on the saw. And they, they pull him apart in two. But to kind of make light of it, he's kind of still looking around at his body and looks confused. And, and up on the other side, his legs are kind of dangling, you know, and his helpers kind of spin us, spinning around. This is not how we thought the trick was going to go, and you wonder, how is this, what's happening here? So then they, they, they pull him back together around the saw, and then he works the clock backwards, the saw goes up, and then he's back together. You have no clue how he did it. That's part of why we paid money to go see him. Everybody claps. It's magic, right? Um, David Copperfield's not a real magician, he is what's called an illusionist. So an illusion is something that appears to be true, but is really just a mistake in our perception of what's happening. So, so an illusionist is someone who is able to distort people's perceptions to confuse an audience about what's really true. But it's one thing to be entertained by illusions. It's another thing completely to base our life and to live as if illusions were true. 
As you think about our world, we, we live in, in, a, in a world of illusions. All sorts of different perceptions about what is true, about what is real, about what is meaningful. Every one of us and, and everyone in the world is trying to make sense of what is true in our world. Is there a purpose? How are we to live? Is there a God? What is this God like? Does anything happen after this life? What really matters? In other, in other words, um, what is true? Is, is truth simply what we, we want it to be? Or is there something outside of us that exists that no matter what our perceptions are of it, it is real. It is unchangeable. It is sure. There's a time when, when Jesus is on trial in his last day, he's appearing before Pontius Pilate, who has the power to set him free. And Pilate's confused about who this person is that they're saying is a king. And so he's asking Jesus all sorts of questions about who he is and why he's come. And one of the things that Jesus says in, in, in explaining who he is, is this. He says, for this purpose or this reason, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is born of the truth listens to my voice. And when Pilate hears that, he pauses it and he responds with a simple question. What is truth? And there's no answer that's given there. It's just kind of left hanging in the air with Jesus standing right before him, because what Pilate misses and what I think John is trying to communicate in the gospel is that the truth is ironically standing right in front of him for him to see, for him to understand that Jesus is God's truth. There are two times in these opening verses where John talks about Jesus being the fullness of God's truth. What that means is in Jesus, we are given the most clear picture, an accurate representation of who God really is. It's not an illusion. It's the real thing given for us. What he shows us is this fullness that's revealed is God's glory. So when you think about this past week, how many times have you used the word glory? Uh, glory is not a word that we use in our everyday lives necessarily. We use it somewhat infrequently. But it's one of those premier words in the Bible used over and over again. And it goes back to a Hebrew word that really means that it's heart heavy. It makes me think about uh, Back to the Future when Marty McFly goes, accidentally goes back in time and as he's, as he's talking with his friend Doc back in 1955, uh, he's always using, he, he hears about something and he says, wow, that's heavy. And, and Doc, because it's 1955, he has no clue what that means. And he's so confused at it. And so one time he says, there's that word again, heavy. Uh, I don't see what weight has to do with any of it. In the future, is there some trouble with the Earth's gravitational pull? <laughs> what Doc doesn't get when Marty says heavy is that he's trying to communicate, oh, this is serious. 
This is weighty. This is real. This has meaning. Back in ancient times, when you tried to communicate uh, something being weighty or valuable, you would use that word heavy or glory because so often the value of something like gold or produce was determined by how heavy it was. So when the Bible talks about God's glory, it's talking about His weightiness, His value, His worth, His beauty, why He matters so much. That's why at the birth of Jesus, uh, when the shepherds hear about this good news of a Savior being born, what they also see is this multitude of angels starting to break out saying, glory, glory to God in the highest. It's, it's an expression of amazement and wonder and awe and reverence that something in the birth of this little child reveals something incredibly good about God Himself. We see this in, in the passage before us in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the one and only Son from the Father. What that means is that in this gift of Jesus, we have a clear glimpse of God's value, of God's beauty, of God's worth, of His goodness. Hebrews 1, He is the radiance, the brightness of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Colossians 1 that was read just a moment ago. In Him, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So that Jesus can look at His disciples and say, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. That's why John says here in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made them known. What that means is that Jesus is the truth about who God is and about who God is for us. In Jesus, we see a window into the heart and workings of God on our behalf. Jesus is the fullness of God's glory poured out unto us. But that's half of the good news that we're seeing here because there's another part that, that really magnifies why this God is so great, is so good, is so beautiful, and it has to do with Him sharing not only the fullness of His glory, but the fullness of His grace. And the Word became flesh, verse 14, and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Full of grace and full of truth. There's that language again, full, fullness, pouring out to us, emptiness, need. Open hands. In some ways, when you think about it, we're, we're all trying to make our way up in the world. That's the kind of direction that we want to move in. Better job, bigger salary, nicer house, better vacations, more success, more respect, more comforts. A kind of upward trajectory. But when we look at, at what's happening here, uh, there's not an upward trajectory that's happening, but a deep downward descent. Philippians 2 says, Though Jesus was the form of God, He didn't count 
this equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held onto securely, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. So what we see is that this fullness of God descends lower into our places of brokenness, into our darkness, into our world of need in order to share the fullness of his light and his life with us. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So a few weeks ago, there was news over of a man who fell overboard on a, over a large cruise ship and was basically stuck in the middle of the ocean off the coast of, of Mexico. And if you've ever been on a cruise, you know that they are very, very clear in giving their instructions beforehand. So you do not climb on the rails. You do not stand on the rails. You do not lean uh, far over the rails. If you fall over, it's a bad story and often does not have a good ending. Now, all of those instructions are a gift. Those are a good thing. They are trying to lead you in the way of life and keep you away from the way of death. But what happens is if you ignore them and somehow find your way into the middle of the ocean, those instructions cannot save you anymore. Those instructions cannot help you. That's not what they were meant to do. What happened is when this man was discovered to be missing, they radioed to all of the different boats around. And so now they do this search and rescue mission where they're, they're working together to try to find this one man who's lost at sea. And he was actually spotted by a completely different boat. And so there they, they go out to him and they, they take him and all of his exhaustion. They, they bring him on board. They give him medical care. They save his life. That's... That's the difference between law and grace. So when it talks about the law being given through Moses, that was a good gift. It was God saying to His people out of love, out of wisdom, this is the way. Walk in it. This is the way of life. Follow it. This is the way of death. Do not go there. Uh, that's a gift. It's a grace. But the law has limitations. The law cannot save us when we ignore it. It only guides us in how we ought to live. So it, when, it's, when we're told that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, we're hearing about something very different. This is not God standing from a distance saying, here's how you should live. This is God plunging Himself into our existence saying, you've ignored everything I've said for you to do. And I have come to rescue you. I've come to save you. I've come to give of myself and sacrifice all that I have in order to bring you back. Grace means God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. And while grace might be like this precious, valuable gem to us, that doesn't mean that it's a scarce resource in God's economy. Verse 16, from His fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. Layers upon layers upon layers. Remember, these opening verses 
John is trying to explain, before he gives this big picture of what Jesus' life is all about, he's trying to give a summary, distilling it for us of why this all matters. And four times in this passage, he uses this word grace, 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 highlighting it. But you know what happens in the rest of the gospel? He's not going to use that word anymore at all, nothing. So does that mean that grace isn't a part of the story at all? I think what that means is that what he tells us in substance here, he's showing us in action in Jesus' life. So when Jesus announces good news to the people, grace. When Jesus heals the sick, grace. When Jesus welcomes the outcast, grace. When Jesus touches lepers, grace. When Jesus teaches with truth, grace. When Jesus endures suffering for us, grace. When Jesus pushes back against darkness and evil for us, grace. When Jesus forgives sins, that's grace. When Jesus defends the poor and blesses children and opens blind eyes and gives hope, grace. And all of this leads up to this biggest act of grace in Jesus taking upon Himself all the weight of our sin and guilt and brokenness. And I love this prayer in Ephesians 3. There's a prayer that Paul prays where he says that, that we might know this, know this kind of love in order that we might be filled with His fullness. This brings up three questions that I'm going to close with. First, if if God's heart is to take the abundance of what He has in His glory and His grace and share it with you, what are you filling yourself up on? We all have these places of emptiness and scarcity and need, and we're, we're all trying to fill that vacancy in different places. When you think about your own life, as God offers fullness of grace upon grace, what do you find yourself looking to in order to find that kind of life as a substitute? Second question, when, we, when, you, when you think about God, is your perception one of giving or one of taking? You can go all the way back to the garden, and this is where things began to go wrong, where the perception of God started to be twisted of, well, maybe He is holding out on us. Maybe I can't trust in Him. Maybe I can't follow Him. Look at how my life is is turning out. Does God need something from you? Does God have that feeling of a kind of needy parent that's dependent upon you? Or is there this sense of He has a fullness that He created out of, that He desires to share, not as a response to anything that I'm doing or goodness, but that out of His sheer grace, He wants to give to us. Third and final question. When you look at at your own life, are you more of a taker or more of a giver? Taking says, I have needs I have desires, I have a kind of emptiness, and I'm going to use you to fill up what I want. Whereas giving says, 
a kind of fullness. I have resources and I have love that I actually want to overflow into your life. What, what we see is that used people use others. And full people fill others. And that's one of the reasons why our perception of God matters so greatly. Because if you see God as primarily using you, I promise you, you will use others in the same way. But if your experience of God is one of abundant fullness poured out unto you, then that is going to begin to change you so that you look at others and say, how can I pass this along what I have so much experienced? Used people use others. Full people fill others. We're all drawn to be takers, but Jesus shows us a different way. He came from the Father full of grace and truth, and from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for who You are. Even despite our twisted perceptions of You, would You forgive us for thinking of You as so small and so needy, operating out of such scarcity, and for ignoring the the fullness of Your glory and the fullness of Your grace, which is meant to overwhelm us, to fill us with wonder and awe. And it's meant to inspire trust, even when our lives don't feel abundant and when our lives feel marked by suffering and hardship, you are still a God of fullness who always does what is good for your people. And we ask that you would make us more like you in the way that we love others, that we would not be a people who use, but a people who give. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.